Today, we're talking to Katie Caselli, an industrial and organizational psychologist and trainer based in Raleigh in North Carolina. Katie is particularly interested in why a lot of training as an investment simply does not work and what she can do to change that. This is episode six of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Turn up the volume and enjoy. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Hi, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett-Hayes. I'm the host of this podcast, which is the podcast for you, for training business professionals all around the world, helping you to start to grow and to scale your training business. Today's guest is Katie Caselli. Katie is a freelance industrial and organizational psychologist in Raleigh, in North Carolina in the United States and Katie specializes in communication and soft skills training. Katie's business is called buildinggiants.com, fantastic name, and you can find her website and all the other links in today's episode in the show notes. Her website of course is buildinggiants.com. Let's dive into the episode. Hi Katie and welcome to the program. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm well. How are things? Good, good. You're based in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina near Raleigh and Durham. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So what's it like there today? Well, it's um, it's muggy and hot as usual. It's going to be about 90 degrees today, probably a little bit of lightning and thunder, just sort of normal for the summer here. <laughs> right. And uh, is that um, going to change next week or the week after? Uh, we can always hope. We've had a really <laughs> wet week, week. <laughs> actually. It hasn't been too bad because whenever it rains, it cools down a tiny bit. So, Are you from the area originally? I'm not. I'm actually from California okay. and, um, you know, always keeping an eye on the wildfires out there um, and just kind of feel lucky out here that whenever there's a fire, it doesn't go very far at all. So um, it's sort of like our firefighters have it much easier here on this coast than they do in California. So I thought we'd, um, we'd talk because uh, your background's quite interesting. You're um, an industrial psychologist or rather industrial and organizational psychologist. Yes, that's correct. So some people use the terms uh, industrial psychologist, some say organizational psychologist, and others say applied psychologist. Um, you describe yourself as both industrial and organizational. Are there actual subtle differences between the two? I don't believe there really are. I think it's it's quite a mouthful, actually, to say industrial organizational psychologist. And some people abbreviate it to say IO psychologist. And some people just say, oh, I'm an industrial psychologist. And others say, I'm an organizational psychologist. And it's it gets a little confusing. Um, I generally try and abbreviate it a bit and sort of just write out that I'm an organizational psychologist and then explain what that is. <laughs> so, um, and some people I've, I've come across are, are calling themselves applied psychologists. Basically, it just means that they're using a scientific approach based on, um, you know, the psychology of how organizations should run. Um, and then using that to fix problems in organizations. Right. So as an organizational or industrial psychologist, um, who typically needs your help? 
Well, it's it's often companies who are a little over their head in sort of a people problem. So, for example, um, I have a client who is, is having some pretty significant trouble with turnover, and she is um, uh, her organization suffered about forty-three um, percent turnover for just the first half of the year. So that's a very significant, very expensive problem. And so they're, they're, it's those kinds of people who are, you know, sort of finding these costly problems that they're not sure what are the systems they need to apply to sort of get out of that situation. And so that's, it's, it's companies that are sort of maybe medium sized, don't have someone who has some deep organizational development background or some deep um, recruiting background. Some of those companies, especially who um, maybe have a team of HR people that's only one to five people large, you know, and um, need some of that extra expertise to sort of bail them out of a big problem. And the thing that unites us, the thing we have in common is that we're both, um, you could say we're both in the world of learning and development. So um, you apply your industrial and organizational psychology to the world of learning. Right, right. And... Um, yeah, I, I sort of grew up with this training background, which I loved. And um, what I love even more about organizational psychology is that you can dive so much deeper into systems and really, you know, you're not applying just a, a temporary fix. You're looking to dive deep and find what are those problems that are going to really build this company stronger um, as time goes on. And that's extremely valuable. If you can look back three years and say, wow, we used to be like this, and now we're like this, you know, and we're having so much more success and things are so much better. That's the kind of systems approach that I like to apply is, you know, how do we really take control of, um, you know, maybe our employee life cycle or, um, you know, leadership problems and organizational structure and really make a deep impact and really show that something big has changed. Right. So you've you've extensive work experience as a learning and development manager and operations training manager and a senior HR training and development manager. It's um, quite a track record. What motivated you to obtain a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology in the first place? Well, the funny thing is, is there's I've noticed there's been some inflation around the need for higher education. So it used to be that a bachelor's degree was fine and that would get you through your professional career. But uh, the more I looked at opportunities, the more I saw that they required a master's degree. So at some point I'm like, well, I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and get that master's degree if I want to advance. And so what I what I did is I took a look around and I'm like, hmm, I could major in L&D, <laughs> but I've already have, you know, 10 years of experience at that point. And I thought, that sounds really boring. And I kept looking until I found just an advertisement that mentions organizational psychology. And I said, aha, that's it. Because I was always interested in psychology anyway. And when I saw there was a formal discipline that would combine what I already knew um, in terms of organizational performance and human performance and add more of that sciency element, I thought, that's really for me. That sounds really, really interesting. And you know, Mark, a lot of people think the same way. Um, in the United States, um, it's, a, it's a small pool of people who are currently doing organizational psychology, but that pool is growing, projected to grow by over 
Really? And so the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying that IO psychology is one of those very fast-moving, fast-growing jobs. And I really think that is absolutely warranted. So if, if our HR culture has to and is expected now to move from that transactional, you know, handle this problem, handle that problem, to go towards this more strategic, impactful change that they're really partnering with the business for that big impact, IO psychology is absolutely what's going to take them there. Because that that scientific approach, that um, data-driven metrics approach, and the the strategy of of what can we really um, get out of our workforce, that, that's what IO psychology brings. So when I noticed that and I realized that, I saw, said to myself, "That's what I've got to study right there." And would a trainer benefit from some kind of um, reading in the area? Uh, I mean, they could go down the road, uh, route or route, as you say, of a. Uh, a formal qualification in the area, but um, is there anything that someone who's an ordinary trainer like myself could do to sort of uh, inform themselves more about the application or applied element of organizational and industrial psychology? Well, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, I get the feedback that organizational psychology sounds like what some people already do in the training industry. And, you know, Certainly, what I don't necessarily see in the typical training specialist or training manager is that ability to um, really take the business in a new direction, a new strategic direction. When I do find people like that, I love it. I'm like, oh, great, you're doing all these things. And yet, um, the typical education in learning and development or the experience or simple certifications don't really get them to that level. So I think IO psychology is is an excellent field, but in terms of a sort of a you know books or resources to get you there without the degree, I'm I'm not really putting my finger on anything except that there are some amazing books out there. Um, so like for example, there's um what comes to mind is um I think the name of it is called Training Effectiveness or How to Make Your Training Effective by Jack Phillips and Ronald Stone. That is a book that deepened my understanding incredibly about how to really bring that impact to training. And when I did get around to getting my master's and going through that curriculum, I, I did come across that material. So I know there's books out there that can really get you going, like, you know, just the basics of needs assessment, doing a, an excellent needs assessment. Um, being able to set up your training to show a result. I, I find that for training person, uh, people in the training field, that kind of information is so, so critical to be able to show your value to the organization. Yeah, literally to be able to say, look, hire me uh, because I don't just deliver the training, I can prove it actually has an effect on the bottom line of the organization. I mean, with all my heart, that is so important. And let me just share a quick story. During this horrible recession we had here in 2008, I was working for an automotive company where, you know, those were the, where the jobs disappeared first. And as we know, the, one of the jobs that's at most peril in a recession is in the training and other kinds of support types of field in an organization. So our volumes went down by 40%. And I started thinking, okay, that's it. I'm losing my job. 
But I went past two rounds of layoffs. And then I finally asked my boss, how come y'all haven't fired me yet? (laughs) And they said, are you kidding me? You keep showing your value. You show us every day how you're helping the business in dollars and cents. And it's true. I had case studies. I had examples of where I was saving them money. And that's the kind of knowledge I think that has really driven my career um, to, to be a success is to be able to show easily and with no, no question about it. Here's the money we saved with training. Here's what we did with training. Here's the impact. So we went from a cycle time of four to three. We saved a 400% return on investment in three months on this equipment, you know, uh, with leadership, you know, um, you can also tie that to dollars and cents. And so that kind of information is, I'd say, not only very critical for any learning and development person to be able to show, but also um, to help them to survive those layoff times uh, where um, where people who are seen as extraneous are let go. Yeah, I had a conversation uh, with Kevin M. Yates, uh, which will be the subject of another episode of this podcast. And his area, um, in fact, he's a specialist in in data-driven analytics on learning performance. And we had a conversation around the area that that very often training individuals, trainers, coaches, uh, learning and development specialists struggle to convince people that... Um, they're not the first to go or should not be the first to go when the organization uh, lays people off. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, and you alluded to this, um, that uh, typically um, 60, between 60 and 90% of training efforts appear to fail. Um, now, Ebbinghaus, who conducted research on the famous uh, f- uh, forgetting curve or learning curve, um, talked about the fact that, uh, you know, when there's no effective uh, intervention to retain learning uh, consistently, people tend to forget what they've learned. Uh, but aside from that, uh, the, the retain, retention of, of information, um, why do you believe that training typically fails? Well, there's actually, there's four reasons why training can fail. And I've, I, here's the story. I went to a conference trying to find out specifically how to teach my leaders to prevent that training failure. And I came out of the conference with my head just spinning. I was like, oh my God, there's so many ways that training could fail. And so I drew up a very simple model to help explain to leaders. And I've been using that model now for about 12 years. And there's four steps. It's very easy. And it's actually a visual model, which, uh, you know, um, we're going to provide that on your website so the listeners can have that. But the first step is to do a great needs assessment. And the needs assessment does not have to be complicated. I boil mine down to simply four questions. And so the needs assessment is basically can just be a single meeting where you're working with the players who are involved in the lack of skills and are impacted by the lack of skills. And you ask these questions, you can come up with basically what's the business need? What has to change? Um, What is the behavior that is going to have to change to support that business need? What are the skills people need to um, change that behavior? And then what's the right training environment for them to learn those new skills so that they can change the behavior and impact that business need? So there's, um, you know, 
there's very complicated models of doing a needs assessment. I would not do those. <laughs> I would just do it this simple way because that's the way your leaders and you know the folks in your organization are going to be able to understand and help you get that data. Um, the next step is to provide the training based on that needs assessment. And that's usually where we focus everything, you know. But to me, the four-step process is much more important to focus on all four steps. You know, training is provided as kind of like the easy, easy way uh, to just address a problem. But if we haven't done the needs assessment yet, oftentimes we're throwing money away and time and effort and lots of energy where maybe training isn't even the problem. I, I'm often uh, asked to provide, say, uh, a sales course, Sales 101, for a, a new sales team or deliver that as part of an organization's onboarding. And often I ask the question, okay, why is this needed? Uh, what is this designed to do in terms of um, performance? And how will we measure its effectiveness? And I'm sometimes met with blank faces. It's as if are you trying to, uh, you know, talk yourself out of the job? Um, you've been asked <laughs> to deliver the training, so just get on with it. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had that blank stare before as well. Um, and oftentimes getting stopped in the hall to say, hey, we need some training is where the, the process starts for the organization. But what what I do is I say, I'm sure I can help you with your problem. But let's just um, sit down and talk about it a little bit more so I'm sure I can deliver you what you need. And in my mind, I know it may not be a training problem, but I can probably still help them. So, um, you know, we may end up with training as a solution, but I want to make sure that training hits the objectives that is going to actually solve the business problem. And if they can't define that business problem, then they'll need some more help, you know. And I'm sure I can help them. They just need that help. <laughs> so. Yeah, I suppose it takes courage on the part of a training provider to to look that gift horse in the mouth and to question someone's rationale, whether they really need training. Um, it, it's kind of tempting to to leap up and say, of course, yes, I'm happy to do it. Here's your leadership course. And uh, when can we start? Whereas if you want a long-term business as a training provider, you really need to be thinking of the the client's interests and and challenge them and say, is this really where your interests are best served? Could we perhaps step back a little and just do even a survey to understand where this is going to be most effective? Right, right. And you know, the needs assessment uh, helps you to figure out what's going to happen after training too. So the behavior change that has to happen when they leave the classroom, that is out of the hands of the trainer in a lot of ways. So, you know, the hard part is we don't supervise our students. We can't follow them out of the classroom and tell them what to do. The supervisors do that. So we have to have a really good partnership with the supervisors of the trainees so that they understand what they have to do to make that training work. And the, the problem is they see it as, well, they went to class, so, you know, things should change. But really, they assign their work. They supervise their work. And so they have a huge factor in whether or not training will actually succeed or not. So one of the things I do when I do classroom training is I do provide a plan so that students have something to go on when they leave the classroom. So, for example, if, they, if I'm doing train the trainer class, in the morning we, we pick um, some kind of something they're going to do some training on and we start fleshing out their plan all through the day. So that by the end of the day, they 
know how they're going to open the class. They know how they're going to set objectives. They know how they're going to um, assess whether people are learning it or not, all that kind of thing throughout the day. So all they have to do is go out of class and execute their plan. But not a high percentage actually gets around to executing their plan and figuring out whether they've done it well or not. So that's where a supervisor needs to kind of say more than, hey, how was class? Glad you're back. Now get back to work. (laughs) They need to say, okay, so you've got these new skills. Tell me your plan for how to use it. Okay, so you went to train the trainer. Let's have you train three people um, in the next two weeks. Okay, so you see the difference there? The involvement of the leader really has some pretty good repercussions of whether a person will use those new skills or not. Right. Um, and, and frequently when when training has succeeded in the long term, in my experience, it's when uh, supervisors, line managers, uh, or senior managers have been involved. Um, they may not have been in the same classroom, but they have received some element of that training, so they know exactly what they're supporting. Right, exactly, exactly. So let's talk about your business for a moment. Um, your business is called Building Giants. How did you come up with that name? It's a great name, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. I, it's funny. I was, um, I was part of a team where I was trying to get more people involved in supporting training. And uh, someone from the corporate office suggested, well, let's call it um, Building Giants. And then we went back and forth a little bit with, hey, what about creating giants, building giants, creating giants? And um, we ended up with Building Giants. And then years later, I still remember that that name. And I said, you know, that is still, it really resonates with me. I'm going to use it for my business name. And so basically the inspiration came from a team way back when. <laughs> and what motivated you to strike out on your own? Because we talked early on about your um, career as operations training manager, senior HR training manager, and so on. What, what motivated you to just, you know, up sticks and say, I'm going to do my own thing? <laughs> well, actually, I, it, it was kind of like I was pushed into it kicking and screaming, which is kind of funny, because now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, but at the time, I was working for an organization kind of nice and safe with my salary and my benefits and everything, you know, but it was um it was rather a frustrating culture and there was quite a lot of disagreements going on. And so I, I mean, I took stock many times leading up to that thinking, you know what, I have so much experience. I have so much expertise and I, you know, I have a great work ethic and I could probably do all this working for myself, but the fear was really holding me back. And so once I realized that it was really fear and that there was nothing beyond that but fear, um, I decided it was time. So after about 20, maybe 19 years of working for big global corporations, I decided I'm going to um, you know, exit the stress, exit that frustration, and try something new, and decided that fear just didn't have the weight it used to have with me. So it's not like my first six months or eight months were real easy, you know, but the more I worked and the more I built the business, the better I felt. And then sure enough, I I became profitable at about month 11, I think, going into it, which was like sort of just in time kind of thing before I had to, um, you know, go into my retirement funds and that kind of thing. And it all uh, sort of was smooth sailing from there. So after that, I felt so good about it. And you know, I, I joke around with people that 
you know, I'm a good boss. I approve all vacation requests <laughs> <laughs> and raises. All those in favor say aye. Approved. <laughs> and it's just so much relax. It's so relaxing to work out of my home and, you know, to the point where I only need to really work three or four days a week and maybe only one day a week in the classroom. And the other times it's maybe meetings or doing some follow-up work or something like that. So I have plenty of time for my kids, um, my sick, uh, my my ill father. You know, I have a I have a time to do what I need to do, and I do travel quite a bit too. And I just feel like it's, you know, it was way overdue when I decided I had all the skills I needed. That's when I probably should have thinking, you know, started thinking more seriously about it. But it really took sort of this. Um, this frustrating and sort of stressful time to really make me think, okay, I'm going to do it. Have there been any challenges uh, on a day-to-day basis in running your own business? Well, I'd say that that is definitely normal that, um, you know, you know, things happen, cancellations happen, um, problems with contracts, things like that. But every time I encounter something like that, I sort of, you know, I learn from it and then it's just not a problem anymore. So it's almost like the learning curve was steep at first. Um, and then, you know, after that, I'm just, you know, the confidence is, was always kind of there. But, you know, after a certain point, it just became so much easier. So I know like the first six months is, is really the hardest. And that's when I think other friends of mine have sort of dropped out of their efforts. But the, the um, if you have a good business model and you know um, that, learning every day is going to get you stronger at say things like marketing and stuff like that. Then, um, if you can hang in there, I'd say that this is really more, um, of a, a, a better thing for you than if you're suffering in a very stressful, uh, environment where you're not feeling appreciated or well-paid, you know, that kind of thing. And, and really no one's going to give you permission to succeed. No one's going to tap you on the back and say, Oh, by the way, you're good enough to do your own thing. Right, exactly. You have to tell yourself. <laughs> and so setting goals and telling yourself you can do it, those are the two main elements of succeeding as an entrepreneur. And uh, anyone can do that. Anyone can set a goal and tell yourself you can do it. So as if things change, that's fine. It's just, you know, keeping going towards your goal is so important. Let's say that someone is listening to this and says, you know, I like the sound of this um, and they want to work with you. Can you describe a typical project with uh, a client who maybe calls you up there, they find themselves referred to you? What typically would be a typical project um, from beginning to end? Yeah, so let's say, um, let's talk about uh, uh, the topic of leadership transformation. Okay, so let's say we have a client who calls me and says, I have a problem with my leadership. They don't seem to be all at the same level. Some are seem to be checked out. Some just don't seem to be doing their job. Others are excellent, you know, and just we're all over the place. And we want more of our leaders to be uh, exemplary and drive the business forward towards their goals. So then we'd have a conversation about, you know, what are those goals and tell me a little bit more about some of the situations that are um, a problem because of leadership. So tell me, you know, some more of these problems. Well, it could be that people aren't, um, they aren't delegating or they're not listening or they're being accused of favoritism or they, um, they have people complaining about them, you know, you know, those kinds of typical things. And so what 
we would, what I'd do is I'd, I'd start to form a plan, um, you know, and, and sort of a tentative plan, like a, almost like a hypothesis, <laughs> if you will. So if we're going back to the science topic, then you want to make sure that you are um, being objective as much as possible. You don't want to bring your own back um, past history uh, into a situation in an organization you've never actually walked into. So you need to be very objective and ask lots of questions and sort of start to test this theory that you're forming um, that, um, you know, to say, based on your experience, um, this is what I think might work in your situation and this is what I think is missing in those behaviors. And this is how I think we can we can um, go forward and make improvements. You also have to sort of figure out if the client is really ready to take some risks and also has um, if you have the right people in the room. So if you're talking to just one person like an HR manager or director and saying, here's what I think we should do. Um, it's still a hypothesis. You still have to run that by other people in the organization and see if they see the situation in the same way. So consulting is is like that, where you're you're basically um, trying to manage, without any real authority, a group of people who are looking in a, in sort of different directions, <laughs> but hope for the same outcome. So it's very it's very interesting, <laughs> and it takes uh, lots of um, time and thought. Um, but what, what an IO psychologist can bring to the table is that best practice. I, I once had a client who, who said, you know, I'm not listening to anyone who's learned this stuff out of a book. I want someone who's been there on the ground and in this situation. And so credibility, building credibility is, is a big part of being a business owner, um, being able to prove, you know, hey, I have seen situations like this. I've seen worse. I've seen better. I've seen, you know, this this kind of, um, you know, disagreement and the resistance. I've seen all of that. So having to convince people that you are the right person to help them out of that problem is a huge part of your day-to-day -day work. Um, it helps when you have something like an IO psychology degree. It helps when you've had 20 years of experience. It helps when you've... Um, you've been in multiple industries, but if you don't have all that, you can still help. You can still find ways to build that credibility and build relationships. And that's what a lot of the day-to-day -day work is, actually. So coming to, um, I mean, you, you said the key word there, relationships, uh, which brings the word marketing to mind. You're a, a business owner. When it comes to generating business for your company, what has been the most uh, single most effective method for you or channel for you? Well, it's funny. I was, um, I sat down with a pair of mentors. Uh, I um, had access to free mentorship through the city of Raleigh and I signed up when I first started my business. And when I wrote to them, we were writing back and forth. They were kind of confused as to what I was going to do. And then we sat down face to face and we had a nice long talk. And then at the end of that, they said, wow, you getting in front of people is the only way you can convince people of your value because getting in front of people, you know, hearing your voice, hearing you talk, that is, um, that is much more compelling than what you can ever write or put into an ad or put on a Facebook or a Twitter feed or anything like that. And so I remembered that and I realized I need to get in front of people. And so I, I started to set up meetings. I started to 
get in front of small audiences. I did free talks. I did. Um, I uh, was in, uh, got myself invited to um, organizations of HR people and training people to be able to market my model and my book and started to get recognized. Uh, even in a store, I was recognized by someone who went to one of my lectures. And, you know, the, they're, they're all free for, for me to them. But it's, what it does is it helps to have people say, oh, here's that person who spoke to me. And I really, you know, what she said really resonated with me. I'm going to give her a call. And so speaking at, um, you know, meetings and then graduated to speaking at conferences and, you know, continually trying to get some spots so that I can get in front of people. In fact, when I'm going to do in a few months is do my first booth at a trade show. And so I'll be, you know, trying to help people with visual and with, um, you know, verbal conversations about what I can do for them. And if you were to advise someone, someone listening to this thinking, you know what, that sounds fantastic. How would someone go about getting themselves invited to the panel of speakers at a conference or some networking event? Well, I tell you, it's it's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> um, in the last three years, I've only been running the business for three years. I've probably had about um, 20 speaking opportunities in front of audiences I don't know. So, for example, uh, there's the Society for HR Management here in the United States. And then there's this uh, Association for Training and Development, which is international. And I believe a Society for HR is also international. Um, these are... These are excellent organizations if that's the type of people you're really ultimately trying to sell to. And so, um, you know, through those speeches, what it, one of the most valuable times is just afterwards when people come up to you and say, heck, that really was helpful. I mean, I can't believe what I just learned here and I can't believe what I've been doing wrong. And, you know, those conversations lead to, hey, let's have a, a talk later on and have a free consultation or something like that. And so that's where you start to really get to know people and build a relationship is when you can help them out. And that's one of the, the bases of the internet, right, is when you provide some free content, some something free for people to be able to use. What I find, though, is that when I put a blog out there or something like that, you know, occasionally people will read it, but they won't uh, necessarily engage as much as when you've, you've been able to use your voice or your presence to um lay out a convincing argument and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for this information. So people who come to a meeting or a conference are like a captive audience, literally. They are looking for this information. Whereas web marketing, although you can reach a heck of a lot more people, um, a lot of it's just going to wash along and, and not be picked up um, when you want it to. Or maybe it'll be on the web two or three years until someone looks for that specific thing and then they take it. So, um, so I think getting in front of people has really worked for me, although web marketing for other industries may work very well for others. You also mentioned uh, the word book. Uh, you've written a book. It's called Building Giants, A Proven System to Transform Your Workforce Through Effective Training. What motivated you to write this book? I I'm guessing that it's an excellent calling card. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But what else motivated you to to write this book and and who could read it and get value from it? Well, the, the book was was something I wrote while I was still working for an organization. And I was um, getting more and more unhappy working for that organization and realizing that there was some information that I had that could really, really help organizations, even if the one I was working for wasn't really 
um, you know, listening as effectively as they could. And that's where that frustration was coming in. So I said, well, you know what? Other people are going to appreciate this. I'm going to go ahead and write it down. And so I was, um, I was on a van pool where, you know, we just let others drive for us to go in and out of the plant. And I had 45 minutes each way to sit there and write my book. <laughs> so it was an amazing use of time. Um, and also, by the time I did ultimately quit, it was almost completed. So my first um, month or, or or three after I left the organization was dedicated to just finishing that book. So um, when I had it out there, um, when you write a book, literally, you add credibility because you're an authority, right, as an author. And so, um, but my main aim for writing that book was to also help people like me um, so if I was to go back, um, 10 years, this is the information I wish I knew how to build impact, how to really show that, um, something has changed for the business because of my actions. And so this book, uh, building giants shows people like me exactly how to do it. And also leaders in organizations. So it's not just the trainers who make this change. The leaders have a huge part of that. So I was hoping that uh, manufacturing and distribution and all other organizations would read this and realize, oh, this is why training is going to waste. This is why it's not working. It's because I'm not doing these specific steps. So it's just a soup to nuts. This is how you do it. This is how you make training work. So I guess if um, you went back in my time machine, I have one, by the way, <laughs> I, lend, <laughs> yeah. I lend it to people now and again, um, you'd obviously write the book uh, sooner, I guess, and you would probably strike out on your own sooner. Anything else you do differently? Because this is usually of, of great interest to people, you know, contemplating doing their own thing. What, what would you give in terms of advice to your younger self? Yeah, so it's funny. When I first got into the training field, it was sort of an accidental move. I was um, working for a pharmaceutical company, and I, um, you know, the the Food and Drug Administration um, really gave us a um, a spank, if you will, on training. We weren't training our people, so they opened up several training jobs, and I said, "That sounds." kind of fun, I'll go into it. But when I first looked at my first room full of people and I started to talk, I was like, what am I stupid? What am I doing? I'm going to talk to a bunch of people. I'm introverted. I'm shy. How can I do this? And at first I was pretty dreadful at it. You know, I didn't look people in the eye. I wasn't loud enough. You know, I wasn't clear enough. And I read from my slides, you know, all those dreadful things that we do when we first start out. So one of the things I wish I could have done first is probably go to Toastmasters or some kind of organization that would have helped me to improve my speaking skills right off the bat. Because um, I think at first I almost thought, I, I can't do this. I think I'll get out of it. And so, um, you know, from the get-go, I should have worked on my presentation skills. But the one thing that really helped me out was feedback. And so the more feedback I got, the better I got. And so that was one thing. The other thing was it, I was three years into my career before someone asked, how do you know your training is effective? So three years of <laughs> doing training where I really had no idea if it was helping or not. And after that, I realized, okay, this is the critical thing. I have to learn how to make training effective. I have to do a needs assessment. I have to do training that is designed to transfer out of the job. I have to make sure that training transfers out of the job and I have to measure the results of that training and show it off. So when I first um, realized that, 
I set about trying to figure out how to set up a training to show a result. And when I had that result, that was the most powerful thing. I was able to show the organization how, uh, you know, we spent $6,000 on training and at this one point, and I was able to show that we got a uh, $24,000 returned on investment in three months. When I showed that to the organization, everything changed. They were much more supportive of training. They were much more interested in supporting training. Um, they were much more interested in giving us money for our budget. And so, you know, how training budgets can tend to shrink, It's and it's very disheartening. The more you show what that training does for the business, the more support you should get. So that's that's what I wish I knew. And because I could have done that, you know, three, four more years. Looking to the future then, um, where is Building Giants going to be in, let's say, two years' time? Well, um, you know, my goal is to improve uh, my, um, you know, how many clients I get for organizational psychology. I've got plenty of clients to do classroom training. So I do leadership training quite a lot. I do train the trainer and, you know, anti-harassment is very um very popular these days. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. What I'd love to do more is more of that, the organizational psychology by Skype. Um, one of the limits I have is that I'm only licensed to do it in North Carolina and I'm licensed to consult anywhere else. Of course, I can always consult. So that's part of the business where I'm trying to grow a little bit more so that, um, I can, um, you know, not travel as much, do a little bit more of the Skyping thing and, um, you know, sort of uh, kick back at home a little bit more and not have to worry so much about travel. I do love being in the classroom, though, because it's almost like I have coworkers again. One of the things about working for yourself is it's a little bit lonely, right? So being in the classroom is so much fun because we're so energetic and, and very, um, very much, you know, laughing all day long. We're in our seats only about half the time. <laughs> Other times we're doing flip chart stuff or team building or, you know, dropping egg capsules or whatever, you know, fun stuff. So, <laughs> but it's also exhausting. So um, that's why I want to sort of split the business more around the lines of half and half. Where can our listeners find out more about you and Building Giants? Well, you can go to my website at buildinggiants.com and there's always the book. It's on Amazon, um, Building Giants. And um, you can always give me a call. So if anyone wants like a free consultation, you know, just to kind of work through some problems, absolutely give me a call. My number is in the States, 919-564-6855. And that's Eastern Time. I'll put all those details in the show notes for the episode. Excellent. It's been wonderful talking to you, Katie. Thank you very much for coming on the program. You're welcome, Mark. And good luck to everyone out there. I know you guys are in tough positions sometimes. Just hang in there and think about just sort of modeling your life after your ideal. And with learning and development, the sky is the limit. You have so much leverage to make so much impact. Hey, Katie, thanks so much for being our guest on today's program. And to you, our listeners, thanks for having the time, or taking the time, I should say, to spend time with us this week, this Thursday, and for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the show, of course, for Training Business Talk 
episodes like this one, a fresh one, every single Thursday. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because, as we say every week, this helps us to promote the show. It makes sense. And to attract the kinds of guests, the people whose expertise and entrepreneurial journey can help you with yours. You can check out the podcast, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, and, of course, on our website, which is www.trainingbusiness.com. So looking forward to your company again next Thursday. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.